Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hey listeners, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts if you want access to new episodes a week early and ad-free. Eduardo Rosenberg didn't know what to expect. It was January 10th, 2010, a balmy Sunday night in Guatemala City. He was with his sister, Daniela. They were on their way to meet Carlos Castresana at CSIG headquarters. Eduardo felt a knot forming in his stomach. It was a combination of anticipation and dread maybe even a little excitement. That's because he was about to learn who killed his father. Sisig had finally learned the truth about his father's murder. The identity of the killer, the motive, the plan, the conspiracy. Castresana was set to hold a televised press conference the next day. The international media would be in attendance. President Colom, the Guatemalan people, the world was on pins and needles, waiting for Castresana to reveal what he and his team had discovered. But before he revealed the substance of this discovery, the Spanish prosecutor had called Eduardo, strongly recommending that he and his sister come to his office the night before so he could tell them the truth before the rest of the world found out. It had been eight months since Eduardo's life had changed forever. Eight months to the day since his father had been shot down in the street, murdered. These last months had been a whirlwind. Due to the chaos provoked by the release of the video, Eduardo had been unable to grieve his father in peace. Moreover, the mystery surrounding his father's murder had left him with a harrowing sense of uncertainty, without any feeling of closure. By this point, Eduardo had moved into his father's old apartment. It felt good to be reminded of his old man, his collection of records and CDs, the art on the walls, family photos. The apartment was full of memories, many of them painful. The past is painful, but sometimes, Letting it go is even harder than confronting it. As their car pulled into the guarded fortress that was Sisig headquarters, Eduardo didn't know what to expect, but he hoped that the truth Casasana had found would dispel all mystery, that it would provide the closure he sought so desperately. But that hope would prove unfounded. Eduardo did learn the truth about his father that night, but it didn't bring him peace or closure. It just brought more pain. From Cavalry Media, I'm Edgar Castillo, and you're listening to The Rosenberg Case. This is Episode 7, The Perfect Murder.
Before he met with Eduardo Rosenberg, Carlos Castesana and the CSIG team had arrived at three incontrovertible facts. Fact number one. From May 5th to May 10th of 2009, a phone using the number 577-59747 made a series of calls to the personal cell phone of Rodrigo Rosenberg. Fact number two. That same phone, using that same 577 number, was used by Ganche, the inside man who had intimate knowledge of Rosenberg's movements. This Ganche also used the 577 number to communicate with the gang of hitmen that killed Rosenberg on May 10th. Fact number three. Every single call made by that 577 number to threaten Rosenberg and to coordinate with the hitman came from inside the apartment of Rodrigo Rosenberg. Taken together, these three facts pointed to one of two possibilities. Either the inside man had been living in the walls of Rosenberg's apartment without detection for five whole days, or there was no inside man. The person who had been making the threatening calls to Rodrigo Rosenberg's cell phone was Rosenberg himself. Leave me alone! Jill, this is Sergeant Sacker. Listen to me. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Our squad car's going over there right now. Just get out of that house. It's one of the great moments in horror movie history. That moment in When a Stranger Calls when Jill the babysitter finally realizes that the man who has been terrorizing her over the phone has been making those calls from inside the house. It's a subversive, almost cruel twist that makes your heart sink when you see the babysitter's reaction. When you see on her face the awful realization that the cause of her terror has been close by the whole time. I imagine Carlos Castesana felt a similar kind of shock when he learned that Rosenberg had been making the threatening calls to himself. I imagine Castesana sitting in his office, slumped down in his chair, reeling, blindsided by the only conclusion that fit all the facts, that made any sense. The person responsible for the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg wasn't President Colom or the First Lady or Gustavo Alejos or anybody at Ban Rural. No. The person responsible for the murder of Rodrigo Rosenberg was Rodrigo Rosenberg. It was a twist worthy of Agatha Christie or M. Night Shyamalan. Even for the turbulent, magical, realist pandemonium that is Latin American politics, this was an outcome that no one could have seen coming, that beggared belief. And that was precisely the problem. After they solved the case, Castresana told his team, and not for the first time, that he thought they were all going to get fired. Not because they were wrong, not because they hadn't found the truth, but because no one would believe it. Was this an answer that would satisfy the hundreds of thousands who had marched in the street, 
holding signs emblazoned with Rosenberg's ghostly visage, protesting what they believed to be a murderous and corrupt regime? Would their findings satisfy the vicious right-wing agitators like Mario David Garcia and Otto Perez Molina, who were champing at the bit to bring down both the Colombs and CC? How could Castesana present these findings without casting himself as, at best, an ally, and at worst, a pawn of the Guatemalan government? By solving the case he had been charged with solving, by doing his job and doing it well, Castesana feared he had just dug his own professional grave. Because it is kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Are we really saying that Rosenberg orchestrated his own assassination by manipulating his friends and family, planting false clues, and creating a false narrative of conspiracy? All in an effort to frame the president of Guatemala for a crime he didn't commit? As unbelievable as that sounds, it's exactly what happened. And the piece of evidence that clinched it was when the CSIG team discovered that the $40,000 paid to the sicarios by the Valdez Spice brothers actually came from Rodrigo Rosenberg. Remember that the Valdez Spice brothers were childhood friends of Rosenberg and cousins by marriage. In episode five, we learned that the CSIG team had traced the origins of the cell phones used to coordinate Rosenberg's murder back to the pharmaceutical company owned by the brothers. Sisig's evidence indicated that the band of hitmen had been approached by the Valdez Spice brothers' personal bodyguard. Now, the Sisig team had discovered how those hitmen had been paid. On Wednesday, May 13th, three days after Rosenberg's murder, his law office received a check for $40,000 from his friend and client, Luis Alejos, the government's Minister of Communications. The week prior, Rosenberg had told his secretary that the check would be coming and to forward it to the Valdez Spice Brothers upon receipt. So there it was. Not only had Rosenberg coordinated his own murder, he had also paid for it himself. In order to understand how this all went down, let's pause here for a beat and focus on the oft-mentioned Valdez Spice Brothers. Initially, Castesana believed the brothers to be the sole intellectual authors of Rosenberg's murder. This turned out to be wrong. But in Castesana's defense, the brothers had fled the country even before an arrest warrant had been issued. So at the very least, they were acting pretty guilty. But now knowing that Rosenberg was the one who arranged his own murder, that he set the whole thing up himself, the question before us is, what part did the Valdez Spice brothers play in their cousin's plan? Were they knowing participants or unwitting accomplices? For Francisco, it all started 
on Sunday, May 3rd, exactly one week before the murder. That day, Rodrigo Rosenberg asked his old friend to come over to his apartment. He needed to talk. First off, he was unlike I'd ever seen him before in my life. He was uh, kind of depressed. That was Francisco Valdez Pais. You're about to hear his version of what happened, in his own words. He told me, look, I've got a problem. What's going on, I asked him. I'd, I'd never seen Rodrigo like this. What happened? He said, remember I told you uh, about how I met this girl and it was going really well? Yeah, I said, because he had told me about that. Rosenberg had previously told Valdez Spice that he was in a romantic relationship, that he had fallen in love with a woman. Now, he confessed the identity of the woman, Marjorie Musa. Rosenberg told his cousin about how they met dropping their kids off at the bus stop, about how their love began with a simple kiss and then blossomed into an affair. Valdez Pais was stunned. Fuck, and, I said. I didn't know that, because I knew Marjorie. She, she was one of the girls who was playing softball. When I told you about how Rodrigo came to tell me that they had killed my father, and so I had known her since that time. So for me, her death had, had hit really hard. Rosenberg continued, telling Valdez Spice that he was in the middle of investigating the murders of Marjorie Musa and her father, Khalil. He outlined the whole conspiracy as he saw it. The Colom's money laundering operation, Musa's nomination to the Ban Rural Board of Directors. Rosenberg told him that Gustavo Alejos had gone to the lengths of threatening to kill him if he kept poking around. So what are you going to do? What do you need from me? I told him. What do you want? And so he told me, what I need is to protect myself. You need to protect yourself because they're threatening you? Yes, I'm being threatened. And I think they're trying to kill me. The first thing Valdez Pais told Rosenberg to do was leave the country. If the most powerful people in Guatemala wanted him dead, the only way to stay alive was to run. Rosenberg refused. Instead, and this is according to Francisco Valdez Pais, Rosenberg asked for a bodyguard. I need you to get somebody that can watch my back, that can protect me, be my bodyguard. Here's where Valdez Spice's account diverges from the official version set forth by Castresana and Sisig. Cooperating witnesses, members of the gang of hitmen, testified to Sisig that Rosenberg asked Valdez Spice to help him hire an assassin to get rid of an extortionist. Francisco denies this categorically. He insists that Rosenberg was looking for a professional bodyguard. And so, 
endeavoring to help his beleaguered friend, Francisco approached his brother Estuardo, who handled security for the family. Me dijo, he told me to go ahead and talk with my brother So I talked with my brother, and uh, he, he said, look, one of my security guards has been trying to find a job for, for a friend of his. So let's give this to him. So here's the thing. When you want to hire a hitman in Guatemala, you never actually use the word hitman. These kinds of transactions are almost always conducted in euphemisms or code. So when Francisco Valdez Pice denies that Rosenberg asked him for help in finding a hitman, it might be true in the literal sense. In fact, it probably is true that the word sicario was never actually spoken out loud by either man. But that doesn't necessarily exculpate Valdespais. It's still possible that he understood the meaning behind Rosenberg's words and worked his connections to find his cousin a group of hardened, experienced killers, ready for any task. Which, to be fair, is basically what he did. But looking back, we can see that Rosenberg was clearly manipulating Francisco Valdez Spice during this conversation. All indications are that the brothers genuinely believed Rosenberg's life to be under threat and so endeavored to protect him. That doesn't exonerate them from hiring a gang of hitmen, but what they didn't know is that Rosenberg was using them to orchestrate a suicide plot. Still feeling confused? I don't blame you. Getting a handle on this case is like trying to put a puzzle together with your eyes closed. So what I thought we could do is back up a bit and reconstruct the last days of Rosenberg's life. With all the facts at our disposal, this exercise will give us a better sense of Rosenberg's plan and his state of mind, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Monday, April 20th. Six days after the murder of Khalil Musa and his daughter Marjorie, Rosenberg gives a hair clip that belonged to his mother, who had recently died, to the family's longtime maid. Tuesday, April 21st. Rosenberg sends despondent emails to close friends in which he says that he can't stop crying. In which he says, Siento que me estoy desintegrando. I feel like I'm falling apart. Accounts from family and friends corroborate that Rosenberg seemed distraught and depressed in the days following the Musa murders. On that same day, Rosenberg drives to Las Flores Cemetery, where Marjorie was buried. After visiting her grave, he goes to the cemetery's main office and buys two adjacent burial plots. One of the plots was for him, and the second was for Marjorie. If not for her body, then for her memory. Friday, April 24th. Three days later, Rosenberg visits a notary's office. He revises his will 
leaving everything to his four children. Perhaps at this point, it was only Rosenberg's intention to commit suicide. We'll never know for sure, but at some point after the 24th, something, a spark of an idea, changed the trajectory of his downward spiral, turning it into a kamikaze mission. Sunday, May 3rd, Rosenberg asks his close friend, Francisco Valdez Pais, to come to his home. He needs a favor. He has a problem that needs taking care of. That same Sunday, May 3rd, Rosenberg talks with a friend who is scheduled to meet with Vice President Rafael Espada later that same day. Rosenberg mentions that he is investigating the Musa murders. He asks his friend to pass this information along to the Vice President. Monday, May 4th. Rosenberg takes an unofficial leave of absence from the law firm he founded. His partner, Maria Mercedes Marroquin Pemuller, is placed in charge. Rosenberg addresses the office and tells everyone that he is taking some time to attend to personal matters and that he fears his life is in danger. On that same day, Francisco Valdez Pais calls Rosenberg to inform him that he's found someone ready to help take care of his problem. In lieu of meeting with the man personally, Rosenberg orders his driver, Luis Lopez, to purchase two different cell phones in two different shopping centers. He tells Lopez to use prepaid cards and to not give any form of personal identification. After Lopez buys the two burner phones, Rosenberg keeps one and tells Lopez to send the other phone by mail to his cousins, Francisco and Estuardo Valdez Pais, at their pharmaceutical laboratory. The plan is now in motion. Tuesday, May 5th, Rosenberg visits his mentor, Luis Mendizaba, and shows him several calls from an unknown number made to his cell phone. He says that someone has been threatening his life. Rosenberg claims that he talked directly to Gustavo Alejos, the president's chief of staff, and that Alejos threatened Rosenberg to stop investigating the Musa murders. An important note, the only record we have of this conversation and its substance comes from Luis Mendizabal himself. That same day, Jesus Manuel Cardona Medina, the intermediary with the gang of sicarios, goes to the office of Francisco Valdez Pais to get his assignment. Valdez Pais gives him the burner phone sent by Rosenberg and tells him to turn it on at 8 p.m. that night. Later that night, Rosenberg uses the cell phone with the 577 number for the first time. He uses it to fake the threatening calls to his personal cell phone. Its first use is registered at 8.57 p.m. Rosenberg then calls the gang's intermediary, Jesus Manuel Cardona Medina, and pretending to be the contractor of the job, begins to arrange his own murder. They negotiate a price of $40,000. Wednesday, May 6th. 
Rosenberg calls his good friend and client, Luis Alejos, President Colom's Minister of Communications and the younger cousin of Gustavo Alejos, the Chief of Staff. Rosenberg cashes in an old debt, asking Luis Alejos for $40,000. The minister agrees to pay and tells him that he'll have a check sent from his Panamanian account. Later that night, Rosenberg and a few close friends from college meet together for dinner and drinks. Rosenberg again relates his suspicions and once again publicly expresses fear for his life. That same night, Wednesday, May 6th, Rosenberg goes to Boutique Emilio and in the little office meets with Luis Mendizábal and Mario David Garcia. According to Mendizábal and Garcia, Rosenberg told the radio host about his investigation into the Coloms and the threats made on his life. Rosenberg supposedly tells the two older men that he is meeting a source that upcoming Sunday to purchase hard evidence, proof of the Colombs' involvement in the Musa murders. Garcia suggests that Rosenberg film a video statement in case something were to happen to him. They arrange to meet the next day in order to record the video. Thursday, May 7th. Rosenberg goes to the office of Mario David Garcia to sit in front of that blue curtain and record his final message to the world. According to Garcia, Rosenberg was scheduled to appear on his radio show the following Monday to make his allegations against the Colom administration public. Saturday, May 9th, Rosenberg goes to Antigua with his son, Eduardo. Eduardo says that his father seemed afraid and paranoid, wondering if it was safe to take his car and looking over his shoulder repeatedly. Combined with Rosenberg's actions on May 6th, it's clear that he was seeding an impression in the minds of his friends and family that his life was in imminent danger from powerful, unscrupulous actors. In a sense, he was putting on a performance, dramatically exaggerating his fears in order to make them memorable in the minds of potential witnesses. Here's Francisco Valdez Spice. That's one of the things that's, that's always struck me. I've always said that the only person responsible here, eh, like, like Castresana said, was Rodrigo Rosenberg. Eh? And he used a lot of people who didn't help him kill himself, but who helped him accomplish specific things. For example, his driver. Eh? He didn't know that he was getting that bicycle fixed for Rosenberg to get shot while riding it. Also on May 9th, Rosenberg calls Luis Lopez to ask if his bike has been fixed yet. He had asked Lopez to take it into the shop. Lopez confirms that the bicycle has been fixed. Later, Rosenberg visits Mendizaba and gives him 100 copies of the video recorded at the office of Mario David Garcia. According to Mendizaba, Rosenberg asks him to distribute the DVDs widely if anything were to happen to him. Rosenberg also includes a handwritten document 
detailing his allegations with the cover page that says, Luis, thank you for always being the best of friends, Rodrigo. Again, we only know of this encounter from Mendizabal himself. Saturday, May 9th, later that night, Rosenberg calls Aziza Musa. After a brief conversation, Rosenberg tells her that he plans on taking a long bike ride the next morning to clear his head. The fact that Rosenberg, who was supposedly in fear for his life at this time, would go on a leisurely bike ride by himself had always stumped investigators. With the benefit of hindsight, it's clear that Rosenberg made this call in order to establish a reason for the bike ride. He knew that it would appear strange, especially given that he hadn't gone riding in a while because his bicycle was broken. Calling Aziza the night before his murder provided a form of cover for an activity that, at first glance, would appear out of the ordinary. Sunday, May 10th. The next morning, at 8 a.m., Rosenberg uses the burner phone for the last time to call the hitman. And, as Ganche, the inside man, he tells them what the target, himself, is wearing and exactly where to perform the murder. He then exits his apartment and heads out into his neighborhood on bicycle. About a block away from his building, he stops at a predetermined spot, the place where he told the sicarios that the target would be. He sits down on the grass. At 8.10 a.m., a white vehicle pulls up next to Rosenberg. Lucas Santiago Josue Lopez jumps out of the car, rushes up to Rosenberg, and shoots him five times, killing him. Rosenberg falls back onto the grass, facing away from his bike, dead. Just a few hours later, on that same day, Francisco and Estuardo Valdez Pais still reeling from the shock of Rosenberg's murder, find themselves confronting the intermediary in the parking lot of their pharmaceutical lab. According to Francisco's account, Rosenberg, as Canche, told the sicarios to approach the Valdez Pais brothers for payment. He said, look, the guy you set me up with isn't answering the phone anymore, and we need to talk to him. Fuck, I told him. How's he supposed to answer the phone when you guys killed him? And he said, ah, like he was also surprised. Ah, but that's what he asked for. That was the moment that Francisco Valdez Baez realized that Rosenberg had set them up, that Rosenberg had ordered his own assassination. Not having received the check Rosenberg would send three days later, the brothers were forced to frantically scrounge up as much of the hitman's payment as they could. Later, when the check for $40,000 finally arrived, Francisco ripped it to shreds, destroying the evidence. 
allegedly. Months later, as Sisig's investigation neared its terminus, the brothers would go on the run. That was it. That was the story Carlos Castesana told Eduardo and Daniela Rosenberg on January 10th, 2010. It's the same story he would present to the world the next day at an internationally televised press conference. But he wanted Rosenberg's children to know the truth before the rest of the world did, before the rest of the world took the story and ran with it, twisting it, distorting the memory of their father in countless ways. Eduardo couldn't believe it. Before coming to Sisig headquarters to meet with Castresana, he didn't know what to expect, but it certainly couldn't have been what he just heard. If this was how it really happened, it was unbelievable, almost grotesque. After all, how many people had his father hurt in this insane act of seppuku? The lies, the secrets. What kind of damage had he done, not just to his loved ones, but to his country? It was almost too painful to bear. Still, the evidence seemed clear. The truth stood before him like a stark, unyielding sentinel. Castresana, perhaps seeing that pain in the tearful eyes of Rosenberg's children, assured them that he believed that their father thought he was doing the right thing. That he was working to bring justice to those he felt responsible for a heinous crime. The prosecutor compared Rosenberg to Raskolnikov, the tortured main character from Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. A good man sent down a tragic path by the creation of a sustained, warped reality. Before leaving Castresana's office, Eduardo asked the prosecutor for one final favor. If he felt it to be the truth, could Castresana say in his press conference the next day that Rodrigo Rosenberg was an honorable man? Eduardo and his sister left. Rodrigo Rosenberg's son returned home to the apartment that used to be his father's. I don't know if he slept that night. I doubt it. He knew the days ahead would be difficult. He knew that in the days and weeks to come, he would be confronting many dark and difficult truths. Carlos Castesana couldn't sleep. He spent the night before the big press conference tossing and turning. He hadn't had a good night's rest in a long time. The many long months of stress, death threats, of family problems, of being battered and defamed in public by right-wing media pundits had all taken a severe toll. The next day, he was set to lay the solution to the Rosenberg mystery before the world. The fate of Guatemala's democracy seemed to be in the balance. This had proven to be the most trying case of his storied career, and he feared the case that would bring that same storied career to an ignominious end. Obviously, the task before us was not easy. 
It was filled with obstacles and barriers. As you know, a case of this magnitude is not easy to bring to resolution. It required an investment of resources, of time, and of a team from the public ministry and the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala. So it's with great satisfaction, after eight months of investigation, that we present the fruits of those labors. That was Amilcar Velázquez Zárate, the Attorney General of Guatemala, providing a brief statement of introduction at the press conference on the Rosenberg case called by CICIG. Hundreds of politicians, businessmen, diplomats, and members of the international press had gathered in the grand auditorium of the luxurious Camino Real Hotel in Guatemala City. They all waited anxiously for the Attorney General to stop talking and just turn the time over to Carlos Castresana, who sat on a raised platform in front of the crowd. Castresana had already alerted the press corps that the findings he was about to publicize were provisional. Although the CSIG team had not discovered answers to every question presented by the Rosenberg case, Castesana felt it necessary to divulge what they had found so far in the interest of the public good. At the very least, the central question of the case, who killed Rodrigo Rosenberg, had been answered, supported by more than sufficient evidence. Castesana believed it was Sisig's duty to quell the uproar provoked by the Rosenberg video and to do whatever they could to restore peace and harmony to Guatemala. For him, the best way to do that was to tell the truth. Thank you to Mr. Amilcar Velázquez Zárate, Attorney General of the country. Mr. Attorney General, I invite you to take a seat in the front row to watch the presentation. And Mr. Commissioner Carlos Castresana, you can begin the presentation. Castresana, dressed in a dark suit and tie, endeavoring to project confidence and gravitas, notwithstanding his internal doubts and the pretzel of a knot in his stomach, stepped up to the podium. He looked up at the packed house, took a deep breath, and said, Then, after reiterating condolences to the Musa and Rosenberg families, Castresana turned towards a PowerPoint presentation on a large screen to his left and got started. For the next 83 minutes, Castresana would proceed to dazzle his audience with the masterful breakdown of the Rosenberg case in its entirety. Step by step, slide by slide, Castresana outlined each phase of his team's investigation. Initial analysis of the crime scene and security camera footage, tracking down the gang of hitmen, analysis of phone records and metadata, tracing the purchase of the burner phones to Rosenberg's driver and the Valdez Spice Brothers and the cell phone tower triangulation that enabled them to discover that Rosenberg had been making the threatening calls to himself. Once Castesana connected the $40,000 Rosenberg had received from Luis Alejos to the Valdez Spice Brothers and their hiring of the hitman, the mood in the room began to shift. 
As the pieces of evidence piled up, it became clear that Castresana was guiding them to one inevitable conclusion. Then he dropped the bomb. ¿Quién planificó pues el hecho? Pues tenemos que concluir que fue el propio Rodrigo Próspero. The shock in the room was palpable. Everyone was stunned. After eight months of upheaval, uncertainty, and mystery, this was the last thing anyone expected to hear. It was an absolutely stupefying resolution. And yet, Castasana had so meticulously laid out the evidence that it seemed inescapably true. Rosenberg had perpetrated perhaps the strangest political assassination in the history of political assassinations. The best way to describe it was as a sort of suicide by contract killing. The obvious implication was that President Colom had been fully exonerated in the murder of Khalil Musa and Marjorie Hildebrand, in addition to the First Lady and the Chief of Staff, Gustavo Alejos. If Rosenberg set up his own murder, then the allegations he made against the president were clearly also contrived and therefore false. Castresana confirmed as much in a Q&A session after his presentation. The president had been watching the press conference from his office in the presidential palace. Roberto Isurieta, the strategist that had helped Colom navigate the crisis, flew to Guatemala to stand by Colom's side and support him, regardless of the conclusions presented by Sisig. So I arrived there, you know, it's like, okay, who killed him? It's like, you know, you're getting to the end of the chapter, the last chapter. And I went there, I said, who killed him? He looked at me and said, I don't know. I said, no way. I don't know. Let's go and see. Oh, goodness. And I have a picture, you know, um, when we were watching that program, with, and I was observing him. He was watching the program with full attention because he, as everybody else, we were not fascinated. I don't know there was a war. We were like, I can't believe this. After the press conference, with the truth revealed, a vindicated Colom must have breathed several deep sighs of relief. Two hours later, he called his own press conference to take a victory lap. With his wife Sandra standing on his right, he spoke directly to the Guatemalan people. Today, a sad but very important chapter in the history of Guatemala is closed. May 11th of last year, we were accused of causing a tragic death, without proof and without any foundation. After the press conference, Castresana was bombarded by questions from staggered members of the press. A part of him continued to fear that no one would believe the results of the investigation and that he was about to lose his job. And yet, he had done his job, and done it well. He and the CSIG team had solved a murder in a place where the overwhelming majority of murders go unsolved. They had found the truth. Yes, that truth happened to be more surreal than a Mexican telenovela directed by David Lynch, but it was still the truth. 
Castersana didn't know whether this truth would save Guatemalan democracy or destroy it, but he was going to stand by it. Consequences be damned. Like my guy George Orwell said, in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Sisig had closed the case. They had found the truth. But was it the whole truth? Had Castesana's team been able to put together a complete, crystal clear picture of what happened? Of how Rosenberg had nearly managed to pull off the perfect murder? Were they missing something? Were there any questions left to answer? That's next time on The Rosenberg Case. If you don't want to wait to find out what happens next on The Rosenberg Case, be sure to subscribe to Cavalry Plus only on the Apple Podcast app to get next week's episode right now ad-free. Trust me, you won't want to miss it.